Hello and welcome back. Over the next seven weeks, we will be releasing all sessions from the WSC Spotlight Novel Therapeutic and Diagnostic Approaches for COVID-19 and Sepsis here weekly on Tuesdays. To see the full release schedule, please visit the Congress website. If you want to listen to one specific speaker, please use the chapter markers. If you want to see the presentations of the speakers, please head over to YouTube and search for World Sepsis Congress there. Today, we are starting with Session 1, the opening session, featuring six amazing speakers. Before we get into it, a word from Janssen, the exclusive sponsor of Session 1. As the world finds its way forward, people never stop needing ways to conquer disease, ways to live with HIV, ways back from cancer. So you can count on Janssen to keep producing the medicines you need while we continue work to help end the pandemic. Janssen is the pharmaceutical companies of Johnson & Johnson. We never stop working toward a future where disease is a thing of the past. Again, thanks to Janssen for supporting the Congress and this session. Now, let me hand it over to Louise Thwaites, member of the WSC Spotlight Scientific Committee and the Asia-Pacific Sepsis Alliance to get us started. Hello, good morning, good afternoon, good evening. My name is Louise Thwaites and I am the moderator for this first session of our special Spotlight event today. Um, it is my pleasure to be opening this very first session of the event. Uh, I'd like to thank our exclusive sponsor, Janssen, for this session. Before we, we go on with our first speakers, however, though, I would like to invite Evangelos, our program chair, who's going to give the opening remarks. Thank you very much. Good morning, everybody. My name is Evangelos Jamorelos. I'm professor of internal medicine and infectious diseases at the University of Athens. And it's a really honor for me to be the uh, program chair of this uh, spotlight event of the Global Sepsis uh, Alliance. And actually our idea is that for all of us who are participating and who are attending and who are interested in the field of sepsis, it is a great opportunity because the pandemic and uh, actually the level of awareness, of the widespread awareness and societal awareness about what a lethal infection is, is generating for us the path to communicate to everybody, not just to physicians, how important sepsis is, and this is the top killer. With this in mind, we have drafted a program which goes from the reaction of the host to a lethal infection. The prompt diagnostics and the best therapeutic approaches with as much as possible to, pro to uh, provide as many information as possible within nine to 10 hours in order to acquaint you with the new developments in the field. So I would like to uh, pass to uh, Louise, uh, the chair for the first uh, session, and we are uh, wishing to you uh, a really uh, enjoyable spotlight event. Thank you very much. Thank you, Evangelos. So we're about to, to go over to our first speaker. I'll just remind you that please uh, put questions into the chat box. Uh, 
The first talk is actually going to be pre-recorded, so we can't have questions on that one. But we're really fortunate that all the other speakers in this session uh, are here live and will be able to answer questions. So please, please do participate like that. So our first speaker uh, is Peter Hortez. He is the Dean of the National School of Tropical Medicine and Professor of Pediatrics molecular virology and microbiology at Baylor College of Medicine. He's also the co-director of the Texas Children's Center for Vaccine Development and Texas Children's Hospital Endowed Chair of Tropical Pediatrics. He's university professor at Baylor University, fellow in disease poverty at James A. Baker, the third Institute for Public Policy, senior fellow at the Scowcroft Institute of International Affairs at Texas A&M University, a faculty fellow at the Hagler Institute for Advanced Studies, and a health policy scholar at Baylor Center for Medical Ethics and Health Policy. And he's going to be talking today on the role of science and novel technologies to combat 21st century health threats. Thank you for the uh, opportunity for me to say a few words. Uh... Uh, for the World Sepsis Congress and the Global Sepsis Alliance, and congratulations on all your important work. And uh, look forward to uh, hearing more about um, your your findings regarding the therapeutic and diagnostic approaches to COVID nineteen um, as we approach our third year now of this uh, horrible pandemic, we're realizing the loss of life uh, caused by COVID-19. Um, while the official estimates are between five to six million, uh, many such as the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation put it closer to 20 million and maybe four or five million uh, deaths uh, in India alone. And, and nations such as the United States and Russia were looking at easily uh, over uh, a million deaths. So a horrific human tragedy. Uh, in part because we've failed to um, rapidly accelerate our ability to vaccinate the world, uh, especially um, the world's low and, and middle-income countries, and to provide therapeutics for low and middle-income countries. And to me, this vaccine inequality remains um, one of our great failures. Um, I think you know, we the COVAX sharing facility was an important uh, organization for sharing vaccine doses. I think in many ways there was some upstream science policy failures that there was so much emphasis on speed and innovation. And we did get some interesting vaccines, mRNA vaccines, adenovirus vectored vaccines, DNA vaccines, particle vaccines. But of course, as any engineer might tell you, uh, when you use a rely on a brand new technology, there's a learning curve before you can go from zero to the nine estimated nine billion, nine to ten billion doses needed for the world's low and middle income countries, and there wasn't that ability to rapidly scale a, a brand new technology. Um, our approach has been to focus on the vaccine producers that are already in place in low and middle income countries, in places such as India, Indonesia, Bangladesh, Vietnam. Brazil, uh, Argentina, uh, Cuba, which already have the ability to make their own vaccines using uh, microbial fermentation and yeast, recombinant protein vaccines. And uh, this was our, our approach to uh, be able to use that system that's already been in place to produce recombinant protein hepatitis B vaccine. For example, a low cost vaccine, a vegan technology, no animal cells and human cells, 
that was been our approach to for our parasitic disease vaccines, coronavirus vaccines for SARS and MERS, and now COVID-19 vaccines. And that's been in place uh, now and, uh, and uh, we transferred the technology with uh, no patents and, and involved because as I often like to say, when your house is on fire and you can make one phone call, you don't call the patent attorney, you call the, the fire department. So we hope to be the fire department. So our Texas Children's Hospital Center for Vaccine Development did that technology transfer. It's now been scaled in India to 300 million doses with plans for over a billion. It's been released for emergency use authorization. It's been given to almost 30 million uh, adolescent school children in India, and now it, um, it's just been approved for the five to 11 year olds. So the hope is this can start, uh, projects such as this can start uh, addressing the terrible uh, vaccine uh, inequalities. I think equally important is we have to address a very aggressive and dangerous uh, anti-vaccine movement that I now call an uh, anti-science movement. And I don't even call it misinformation or disinformation anymore. I call it uh, anti-science aggression. The numbers are quite chilling. So for instance, here in the United States, um, since May 1, 2021, that's the date last year, when the Biden White House announced that any American who wants to get vaccinated will have access to an effective COVID vaccine. We had um, a large segment of the population refuse to take a vaccine. So after May 1, 200,000 additional uh, unvaccinated Americans needlessly lost their lives because they refused to get vaccinated out of defiance, out of refusal. Actually, I consider them victims, victims of anti-vaccine, anti-science aggression, which has become a dominant force in the U.S., and now, unfortunately, it's uh, accelerating into Canada, into Western Europe, uh, the Nordic countries elsewhere. And, and so we have to be cognizant that now this is a force to be reckoned with in, in the world's low and middle income countries. So it's very interesting. I, I've devoted my life to being a vaccine scientist and to making vaccines for poverty-related neglected diseases and now COVID-19. But increasingly, I recognize to really pursue science for humanitarian goals. It also means combating the anti-science. And as some might know, I um, have four adult kids, including Rachel who has autism and intellectual disabilities. And a few years ago, I wrote a book called Vaccines Did Not Cause Rachel's Autism to counter uh, what the anti-vaccine groups were saying. And that made me uh, a public enemy number one or two, but it also gave me um, some insight and expertise into these anti-vaccines, anti-science movements. And, and they are no longer mom and pop organizations. They're well-funded, well-organized uh, entities that's causing a lot of damage. And now we're seeing its impact on causing people to refuse COVID-19 vaccinations, causing terrific losses of life. And, and I worry now that it's not going to stop at COVID-19 vaccines. We're already seeing spillover now um, uh, with convincing parents not to vaccinate their kids against uh, ancient childhood scourges such as uh, measles. And so I worry that we're gonna be looking at a drop off in uh, global vaccinations for children. Uh, and I also worry about its impact on other therapeutic interventions. We've already seen how the anti-science lobby aggressively promoted um, spectacular cures that did not work, such as hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin. And I worry this is going to affect the therapeutic realm as well. So I hate to end on that uh, sort of sour note, but just 
keep in mind that you're doing important work um, and your work is going to be critical not only for promoting good science and, and new therapeutics and diagnostics um, for COVID-19 and, of course, for sepsis, but also combating the anti-science. And this is going to be our new challenge for our profession. So thank you for the opportunity to address you. Good luck on your Congress. And I'm very excited uh, to be hearing about your progress. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you, Peter, in your absence. So as I said, unfortunately, we can't take questions for that talk right now, but um, that does give us a little bit more time for the other speakers in this session. So uh, without further ado, we will go on to our next talk. This is by uh, Direk. Limato Sakoi, who's from uh, Mahedol Oxford Tropical Research Unit, where he is head of microbiology. He's also the associate professor at the Faculty of Tropical Medicine at Mahedol University in Bangkok in Thailand. Direct uh, special interests are, are many infectious diseases, including melioidosis, and also um, antimicrobial resistance. And he's going to be talking to us this morning, this evening, wherever you are in the world, uh, on what is missing in surveillance of AMR bacteria in hospitals in low middle income countries and high income countries. So without further ado, over to you, Direct. Thank you very much, Luis, and, the, and everyone and that coming for today and Global Sepsis Alliance. And I also work in the sepsis, so I, I can every time I talk about the uh, AMR surveillance and the sepsis as well, and what I personally feel that is still missing in the AMR surveillance. So, first of all, you may have seen what is the global burden of the AMR. You might have seen the big paper about what is the global burden of sepsis. And the next one is the global burden of the AMR. And if you follow the publications that the come out, that is about 5 million deaths associated with the bacterial AMR. This is based on the additive scenario that is AMR versus non-infection. And it could be about 1.3 million deaths worldwide based on the replacement model of the AMR versus AMS or antimicrobial susceptibility, sorry, antimicrobial susceptible infection. The key that I think is missing from the big paper that they will have to go on is actually then how many die in each country? How about in your country? How about in each low and middle income countries? I think among high income countries, you have only in the Europe. UK and US that each uh, public health England, CDC or ECDC is doing that. But they're not even in, in China, Japan or upper middle income countries. And then we have to think in the same way that every country nowadays publishes how many die of COVID each day, each year. You have seen the raw data. You have seen some model estimated how many uh, underestimated deaths from COVID in the last year. I think in the same way, the AMR should do the same thing in both all high-income countries and in low in and middle-income countries. Every country should show their raw data, how many die off or die associated with based on the raw data, and then the estimated data can come further. Next, I think the key things that coming highlight nowadays is in the WHO Sustainable Development Goal. 
They talk about the indicators compared between the low middle income countries versus high income countries. The important one, if you go to the link to the website, they talk about the proportion of patients with bloodstream infection caused by E. coli that are resistant to third generation cephalosporins, uh, let's say 3TCREC, by country income level. The graph shows that the proportion is much higher in low and middle income countries and lower in the high income countries. And this parameter has been added into the SDGs parameter that we should look into it further. But I also highlight that these parameters need further investigations and why it happened. And I think many, many people have reasons about it, but we still don't know whether this difference of proportion is really the best marker for the bigger burden in that country or not. I will keep that in mind a little bit and we will look forward. I think the key things that I work into it and it's related to the sepsis as well, because the guideline of the surveillance sepsis is that everyone who presents with sepsis should get the blood culture tested immediately. Or if you cannot uh, wait for the antibiotics, it should be immediately after antibiotics given. But then in every country, you have issues about underutilized set of blood culture. Even in the high income countries, uh, papers published from the Europe, US still shows that blood culture are not using 100% among the patients who should get the blood culture. Uh, we work on it. We publish some issues about the impact of the low blood culture usage on the proportions and incident rates of the AMR. And I'm going to talk a little bit about that work so that you can see what we work on it. In the reality, the blood culture, in, in, even in the mid-high, sorry, upper middle-income country like a Thailand, in, if we look into the whole data, we have the blood culture on the first day. And then if the patients are not improving, we might repeat the blood culture before we switch the antibiotics. So we show the data of the first blood culture and repeated blood culture. And we took whole data into the modeling analysis. In the scenarios that if we take all of the data in, what are our AMR report would look like? And then if we reduce the amount of the data from the first blood culture to be less and less and less. If we use only half of the first blood culture data, a quarter of the first blood culture data, or only just 10% of the first blood culture data, how our AMR report would look like. We kept all of the repeated blood culture data so that it can represent the delayed blood culture. Why we did this? Because there are a lot of talk about in the low middle income countries that Patients present with sepsis, septazone. Two days, not better. Mm, septacidine, metronidazole. Five days, not better. Okay, switch to carbapenem. Seven days, don't die and don't improve one hemoculture bottle. Uh, we don't have much data to support that, but it's coming. But that is the scenarios why we took it into this modeling. So these figures will show you the data from a big tertiary care hospital in Thailand. 1,200 bed hospital. 
And if we use the whole hospital data of both hospital admission data and microbiology laboratory data into the analysis, we present you for the third generation cephalosporin system E. coli. And then you see that the total or overall proportion of CGCREC is about 44%. If we split it into the community origin and hospital origin, based on the WHO class, obviously the hospital origin will be higher and community origin would be lower. Incidence rate in the very old method that per 100,000 population, and then the new parameters per 100,000 tested patients. But if we do less and less and less first blood culture, but keep the data of the repeat blood culture to represent the delay blood culture, how would it look like? If we do less and less and less first blood culture, the proportion of 3GCIEC keep rising and rising because it represents the delayed blood culture. It represents the AMR from the patients who fail first empirical antibiotics. Incidence rate, on the other hand, keep declining because you have less culture-positive patients. Incident rate per 100,000 tested patients didn't change much. And if you took into the criteria of community origin and hospital origin, you will see that the proportion among community origin doesn't change much, but the accuracy or precision, you can see that is lower and lower by the bigger of 95% confidence interval. But the proportion among hospital origin bacteremia, culture positive for E. coli, the proportion of is EC will keep rising. This is what you would observe if you do less and less blood culture or mean the impact of the low blood culture utilization. And this could be one of the reasons that I show in the SDG parameter that low middle income countries have higher proportion of 3GRC. That could be because in low middle income countries, one of the reasons they use less blood culture. Uh, the other parameter that is quite important is blood culture utilization rate. And this parameter also available in the uh, Cassini papers for the whole Europe and in the WHO studies. And I think that it's good parameters, but it cannot be specific among community origin hospital origin, it cannot be specific about the type of the patients or we call case mix. Some hospital might need to do more blood culture because we have more sepsis patients, we have more community acquired sepsis patients. Some hospital might have less community acquired sepsis patients, so they don't, so they use less blood culture per hundred, sorry, per thousand patient days. So that's why another parameter has been proposed, which are quite long name, proportion of patients having blood culture taken on the day or within one day after uh, antibiotic has been started. So that parameter can be helpful if people will do PPS, polyprevalence survey, or review the chart of the whole sepsis patients. We propose that. And the other thing that it could be quite helpful among the AMR surveillance is that if you specify the proportion of the AMR, and this is shown as a proportion of 3GCREC among patients with blood culture positive for E. coli. If you split it on the proportion of 3GCE among patients who get blood culture immediately before or one day 
after antibiotic has started, or among the one who delayed antibiotics. You can see that the proportion of CGSAE is much different. And that's why we think that in the surveillance of the AMR, maybe in hospital in both high-income countries and low-income countries, if possible, they should certify by exposure to empirical antibiotics as well. And that would give us a bigger picture, a better idea about the proportion of AMR in different scenarios. The other thing that I think is quite important is how many days or weeks you need to generate your local antibiogram or cumulative AMR report. And even in the high-income countries, I heard that it could be weeks or months. And I think the key that we propose is can we speed this up? And it has been generated for many low-middle-income countries. Every country, every hospital has to do it every year. So we generate an application called AMES, and we make the program uh, open access. It's easy to use. It works offline. We collaborate with UNIT. And if you are using UNIT, now you can download the new version of the UNIT that can call this application as well. The paper has been published. And the concept is that you don't want to transfer your local data of microbiology laboratory and hospital emission data to other persons, and you might transfer to the national authority and they send you the report many months later. But the key here is that you can just download the application to your own computer. And many hospitals might use a different name of the variable. Some hospitals use the word sex, some hospitals use the word gender. Some hospitals use the word male, female. Some hospitals use silo and one to represent male and female, for example. And that's why we use the concept of the dictionary in the Excel format. We don't ask you to be able to understand that program like a data, SAS, or R. You should be able to use uh, Excel and then put everything into the same folder, work on dictionary, maybe one hour in the first time, and you just double-click the application and then the application will import the data from Excel into the program, analyze, deduplicate, and make the PDF report for you. And then when you have the PDF report and summary Excel file, you can share that report to your national authority, international. You can even make it open access. And you can add the mortality data into it. If you have in-hospital mortality data, it will also come up the report. And that's the data that come back to the slide one that I think is so important in the long in the future. And the key is that you should make AMR surveillance report or antibiogram open access. We did it, we show it, we make it into the fixed share and we should acknowledge them. I think that to make all AMR surveillance report open access, is, that's the goal that we should aim for for the whole world, both high-income countries and low-income countries. So in summary, I think what is the missing? One, how many die of MR per each country, both raw data and estimated data. We should make all MR surveillance report open access from every hospital, and that should be from both high-income and low-income countries. Mortality data at the moment is not in the AMR surveillance report. I think it should add in blood culturalization data. It's only in a few high-income countries nowadays that reported it. And I think every AMR surveillance report or every cumulative antibiogram, it should come up together as well. And I think even if we work in the sepsis, what is the proportion of sepsis patients that get blood culture prior to the antibiotics? I think every country should report that as well. And then 
we should split or stratify the AMI report by the exposure of the antibiotic as well. That I think the key main five things that I want to say, but then there's still many other things like a case-based surveillance, syndrome-based surveillance, or sepsis-based surveillance. Because when we work on the EMR, when we generate antibiogram report, we want it to have an impact on how we use antibiotics. But if we don't have the case-based or syndrome-based, it's quite difficult to convince clinicians to adjust or change their uh, way to use of antibiotics based on the antibiogram. I think that's all for me. And I would like to say that, sorry, I forget to say that most of my study was funded by Wacom Trust. Um, so the committee within the Cetric of the Wacom Trust as well, they focus on the surveillance epidemiology of the assistant. Over. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Direct. That was, that was a really interesting talk and I think a really nice one to follow on with. Um, talking about blood cultures is going to re lead really nicely onto our other speakers who are going to be talking about some newer rapid diagnostics and newer techniques. But I think starting with, with the basics and blood cultures is really nice. Um, I'm just looking at the questions here now. Um, there is... Uh, a question from me to start off with, you talked about the paucity really of data about sepsis and AMR generally. Um, you've given us some examples, but are, are there any countries or systems that, that are working very well um, or any examples where, where deaths and infections and everything is being reported nicely and could be a model for other countries? Are you aware of any of these systems? Hmm. Uh, at the moment, I think that only the ECDC, US, and Public Health England, UK, that do it systematically by the, by the, uh, by the government. I think for the other countries, I think only Thailand that have quite a big data and the, and the research on the mortality. I think the GRAM project of the University of Oxford that work on the global burden of them uh, pull together the data in as much as possible. I think that the it's for the research, but I feel that follow up for the COVID. If the COVID organization is going to switch the work, I think they should switch to sepsis and the AMR. They should report how many die of sepsis and how many die of AMR yearly based on the routine data. Uh, that, that's what I think. So to answer in short, no, not many. And then I think we have organization in every country in the world working on that COVID. I think we should switch it further for the AMI and sepsis. Great. Thank you. Um, there is a, a question in, in the chat here. Um, a substantial proportion of patients with COVID-19 develop uh, secondary bacterial and fungal infections. Um, they're asking in general what are the main infections uh, main secondary infections i think leading to death by continence are you aware of of secondary infections in covid um, uh, is there any data available on i guess on on the amr surveillance generally yeah there are i i have uh, my students working on the data in indonesia i i uh, some reviews about it a bit I think that the MISA staff, uh, MISA and E. coli sinitobacter uh, are quite common, Crepsilla pneumoniae as well, and the uh, fungal, both from the, uh, uh, the, uh, the 
can candidate applicants and non-applicants are popping up. And I think the new one from the uh, India as well, but the data are not systematically uh, reported. I think mostly are the, what you call piecemeal researchers from multiple areas. And the proportion of them are in some reports were higher among the COVID patients. Some reports didn't see the, the change of the proportion and rates. And I think the key is about the case mix, the severity of the COVID patients, steroid usage, and the IPC that they are implemented into the COVID ward as well. That makes the difference we are observing. So that's what I think. Great. Thank you very much, Derek. Uh, well, this, 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 I think we'll just have a very, if you can answer very quickly the last question and then we'll move on. Um, someone's just said, why do many doctors treat COVID with antibiotics? Um, mm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think that it's a combination. I think when we talk about behavior and antimicrobial stewardship, I think that the future is about the behavior of doctors, why they are following the norms and their local guidelines and they, they heard a lot about the secondary antibiotic, uh, sorry, secondary bacterial infection. And then I think that the people worry or concerned about that whether the secondary bacterial infections already from the start or after that. And I think that more and more data would come out, not, not work on it yet, but that doctors tend to prescribe antibiotics based on norm of what people among them normally do rather than about the guideline or what they feel appropriate because it's safer for them and the patient satisfaction is more important than the guideline in general. But I think more research have to work on it. But my update, diagnostic stewardship, highlight this issue. And I'm quite sure that antimicrobial stewardship is the same thing for that. Over. Thank you. Thank you. And with that, we will move on to our next speaker, Erin um, Zahavi. Erin is originally a PhD in chemistry and biophysics from the Hebrew University uh, and a postdoc uh, from the University of Texas in Austin. But more recently, he's been the head of innovation of Israel's Institution for Biologic Research. Uh, he's worked part-time at Adaltis um, and now is CTO full-time for the bio division of BATM. He is going to be talking this morning about uh, rapid multiplex diagnostic evaluation for sepsis using isothermal rolling circle amplification. So over to you, Aaron. So let me first thank you all for the meeting and relate to the previous speakers like Peter and uh, Derek uh, about the notions of uh, uh, the anti-scientist movement in the world. I think this is quite severe and uh, I, I really felt this notion during my position in IIBR during COVID time, where I had to uh, face a lot of uh, very weird and anti-scientific uh, ideas and uh, problem about this uh, diagnostic and also therapeutics. So here we are in Adaltis and BATM and Ador company in all the company that uh, we are holding and, uh, and advancing, we are absolutely 100% uh, pursuing a scientific, uh, uh, scientific uh, solution uh, to, to diagnostics issues. 
and mainly in infectious disease, uh, not only in sepsis, in uh, multirespiratory disease, in tuberculosis as well, in uh, meningitis and other type of disease. Uh, so this is what uh, we are doing. And here we want to present our solution to, to, the, uh, to the sepsis issue. Adore is a company that is holding by BATAM and Adaltis, which is dealing with diagnostic, IVD diagnostic. Uh, funded in 2016, and uh, we are producing a point of care uh, point of care solution to the to the infectious disease community. Uh, we are holding a, a very big lab in Rome in Adaltis facility, which was Merck's own diagnostic, and also in Rehovot Israel, where we are developing a unique solution for the this uh, problem. Uh, one of the the disease that we want to face is a sepsis, of course, which, uh, of course, it's a very complex and acute uh, condition disease, which requires a very rapid uh, diagnostics and treatment. And this is, uh, and, and comparing to the old gold standard of blood culture, which takes a lot of time and a lot of experience and subjective analysis and because a very high burden uh, uh, in hospitalization and expenses. So what we are offering is uh, to face directly the sepsis diagnostic challenge. And for this, it's also a variety of different bacteria that can cause sepsis, which you can see the list here and you all know them. Also, as my previous speakers was talking about AMR, antibiotic-resistant bacteria, which we need to face, which are a subspecies of the common bacteria, and also deal with viral uh, condition, which might cause also sepsis as a septic shock. So we want to introduce and face all of this target in order to have a rapid and uh, uh, detection. If you uh, so, you can see here what we have is uh, what we want to achieve. The requirement for us is have pathogen detection, a multiplex pathogen analysis, uh, drug resistant detections, and also polymicrobial capability, which means if there are several pathogens in the same sample, we need to finalize and uh, detection each one separately. And what we need to do in terms of operation in the hospital, in the clinic, and also in the point of care in rural area, we want to achieve a sample to answer a rapid uh, detection, less than one hour, high sensitivity and specificity, reliability is very important. And uh, this is very scientific, as Prahad of the speaker talk, and also it must be integrated in the workflow. <clears throat> what we see here is our uh, under development machine, which is already working as in a functional uh, model that we have and several cartridges. What we see here is the NATLAB machine with its computer interface and variety of cartridges in different color, which every color for us uh, will mean a different uh, panel of disease. So one color can uh, reflect to sepsis, the other one tuberculosis, respiratory disease, meningitis, etc. And uh, we will talk about the panel in the end. And our main feature, of course, are very important. If you will see in the next slide, a slide please, a, a true load and go system. We want this uh, sample to answer disease. I will show immediately in the cartridge. 
We want it to be rapid, under 45 minutes or 60 minutes. Uh, minimum handling with this multi-parameter. We want to see many pathogen, or, uh, distinctive pathogen in one sample, which will be reflect different pathogen of sepsis or other disease. Uh, it must be versatile with different uh, clinical samples. Uh, scalable, we can use many units and, and connect them via IoT and random access and all this uh, network system. So you can see in the next slide how, how it is working. Uh, from the sample, from the sample, from the clinical sample, put it directly to a cartridge, and then the cartridge will go directly to the uh, NATLAB machine. And if you will see in the next slide, I will show you what is going on in the, in the cartridge. So what you see here, this is the cartridge that we, are, we have designed and manufactured. If you will click one more, you will see where is the sample port to introduce the sample here. And on the next click, please, you will see uh, the area of all the DNA or RNA extraction. So all the handling of the sample and the DNA extraction is happening inside the, the microfluidic cartridge. You will see the area of the uh, amplification, the molecular amplification, which I will talk momentarily about. This is not a real-time PCR. This is isothermal amplification of the DNA, which happened rapid and specifically. You will see our uh, unique IP carbon array uh, electrode where we can do uh, more than 100 targets. So on each target here, on each spot that is very small here, there will be a different target for a different pathogen, so we can, we can uh, in parallel, distinguish and identify uh, one of many, many pathogens. What we are introducing in this cartridge, this is a different type of molecular amplification, not, uh, not RT-PCR, but isothermal amplification, which we call, not we call, of course, it's in the literature, we call rolling circle amplification. The rolling circle amplification, it's a type of amplification adapted from bacteria where they amplify a, a plasmid a, in isothermal temperature in a very rapid and enhanced manner. So in this, uh, in this technology, we are uh, making much more simpler machines because we don't need a thermocycle and we need much less amplification. Amplification will take at least 45 cycles. Example: In here, we can do the amplification in a manner of 10 minutes uh, from the target. But what it is required, if you will see in step one here, it is required a circular probe, which is not fully circled like a plasmid, and it only uh, ligate and be a full circle once it will recognize the, the DNA of the pathogen. So if it is hybridized on the correct area of the circular probe to the target pathogen, there will be an hybridization in the nicking area, and then there will be a ligation by an enzyme. Then only then in step two, after the ligation, we will see the full circle like a plasmid. And from this on, you can get an amplification like, a, like a, as I said, like bacteria amplify plasmid. And in five to 10 minutes, you get those steps or uh, four, five, and six to have 
a very full amplification of the circular probe. And this circular probe contain the specific DNA, the diagnostic uh, uh, area of uh, the pathogen. So if this is happening on every different pathogen, you, you will see only the circular probe that is specific to the pathogen that it will be amplified. We have adapted this, uh, uh, all this uh, amplification to, the, to be on a semi-solid um, uh, RCA, as we call it. We can coat magnetic beads in our system with different circular probe, and each bead, or sometimes several circular probe on the same bead, will be uh, will be amplified only upon uh, the introduction of the correct pathogen. And after this amplification of the RCA, we receive a very very long double helix uh, DNA because we are doing also forward primer and reverse primer. I will not go into the details, but this, uh, we don't have the time for this. And after this, we are doing a, a cleavage of this DNA to a shorter, specific uh, DNA. They are introduced to our carbon array and only where the spot is specific to the DNA of the target of the bacteria that is existing in the sample, in this GLAD sample, for example, in sepsis patient, only then uh, the relevant spot on the carbon array will be lit up with the fluorescent signal, and this is all happening inside the cartridge. So in here you can see, for example, a carbon array with 100 different uh, electrodes. So we can do here up to 100 pathogens, uh, different pathogens if we want. What we are doing in these cartridges, as I said, we are doing several different panels of disease. Of course, the one of the important is the sepsis panel, which include all those targets uh, that are relevant to sepsis, bacteria, and also viral. Uh, we are doing other uh, panels like respiratory panel, uh, which include COVID, influenza, RSV, pneumonia, legionella, and other. We are doing meningitis panel to distinguish meningitis disease uh, between uh, bacteria, viral, and fungal. We are doing hospital-acquired infectious disease panel for MRSA, uh, vancomycin resistance, and other. We are doing very intensively now with the collaboration with the Stop TB a tuberculosis pan panel that will include uh, all type of uh, different human tuberculosis and non-mycobacteria tuberculosis and all the XDR uh, antibiotic resistant of this. And we are on, doing other panel which may be less important, but uh, these are all on our uh, agenda. So just to conclude, uh, the next slide, this, uh, please, uh, uh, this machine uh, will be, we, uh, we anticipated this to be launched by next year to 2023 with uh, several important uh, cartridges for several uh, uh, panel of disease. There will be a multi-respiratory panel, a meningitis panel, tuberculosis panel, and a sepsis panel. And, uh, we believe this will change the way of uh, point of care diagnostic is happening today. And uh, I hope to be next year in the meeting. 
uh, I hope uh, this will work and I hope we can already uh, show you for the next year our field experiment uh, with those cartridges. So thank you very much, everybody. Thank you, Aaron. Um, okay. Uh, I think we've got one, one very quick question, if you could answer this. Um, you showed a lot of diseases the, you're working in. Somebody is asking you, what type of samples can you use? Um, can it take whole blood? Okay. We can take full blood in this cartridge. Uh, if you go back to the cartridge, uh, a few slides back, uh, in the sample port inside the cartridge, this uh, we can take a blood sample, we can take CSF, we can take bile, we can take sputum after liquidification, and uh, urine, of course. Uh, we can take uh, all these kind of samples inside. Whole blood is, uh, is uh, absolutely welcome, as we say. Thank you. Wonderful. So thank you very much, Aaron. That's um, and we hope we do see you at that next meeting. So we'll sure. move on to our next speaker. Um, sticking with microfluidics, um, we have uh, Maiwen Kasadi Kerhouse, who is a professor of microfluidic engineering at Heriot Watt University in Edinburgh. Her group has been working on pre-analytic tools for extraction of circulating nucleic acids for various medical applications. And we're very delighted to have her here this, today talking on sepsis diagnosis with a cell-free DNA sequencing approach. So over to you, Myron. Thank you very much, Riz. So if we look at um, what is available uh, in uh, sepsis diagnostics right now, we have conventional solutions like blood cultures and complete blood counts, which are time-consuming protocols um, with poor diagnostic yields. On the other hand, we also have systemic infection biomarkers like PCT and CRP, which are specific and sensitive. They're not sepsis-specific. Um, and then they don't pinpoint to uh, the, the pathogen responsible for sepsis. And finally, we have new entrants like Abioscope, for example, that can measure pancreatic stern pro protein, PSP, in a sensitive, specific, rapid uh, way um, and, and potentially also cost-effective. But again, um, this is not a solution capable of identifying um, the sepsis-coating pathogens. And um, at the moment, commercially, there is no solution that is able to do that and is also sensitive, specific, cost-effective, um, rapid, uh, portable, and uh, crucially, low uh, targeted treatment. Um, so in this presentation, I'm going to make the case for a microbial circulating DNA approach. Over 1,000 microorganisms are known to cause human disease, which makes the identification of causative pathogens difficult with current techniques. Presumptive approaches like molecular techniques are effective on a limited number of pathogens and could miss emerging pathogens. Now, what if? What if we could identify any pathogens in the blood circulation? A cell-free DNA approach could enable us to do just that. From seminal work started 10 years ago, we know that fragments of pathogens' DNA are released in host circulation. They are naturally fragmented and they are added to the host cell-free DNA population. Now, it is possible to extract, to sequence, 
and to align these fragments to databases of thousands of known pathogens. Groups in the US, Blokamp, um, Shu, uh, in Germany, Kaisan, and in Japan, Yoshinori Ito, have already demonstrated the validity of such an approach. So now I'm going to look at this microbial CFDNA workflow, starting with sample processing. Good sample preparation is crucial for microbial CFDNA sequencing. In particular, host cells must be removed quickly to avoid further contamination of microbial CFDNA by host genomic DNA. So in traditional workflows, there's two ways to do that. You either do the manual bench extraction or you, do a uh, you use robotic fluid handling platforms, which often also necessitate a number of manual steps, which leads to poor control of pre-analytical workflows and result viability, especially in multi-site studies where protocol variation uh, between sites uh, are an issue. Uh, and that extraction also means variable and long turnaround time. Plus, you have to think about sample storage um, capabilities for storing blood or plasma uh, in significant volumes. Um, and it can be quite costly, um, especially in consumable um, equipment and experienced staff. Now, moving on to the sequencing parts. A short read sequencing approach is the most common sequencing technology for microbial CFDNA workflows. It has the, uh, the advantage of high accuracy, but the disadvantage of fairly high capital investments, lack of portability, and fairly long uh, sequencing runtime. So I'd like to point out at this stage that there is a CFDNA-based sepsis test that has been commercialized uh, for the US market by a company called Curious, and which retails at $2,000. Now, in conclusion, complex sample preparation and powerful but slightly cumbersome uh, sequencing can hamper the timely clinical implementation of such a promising approach. I'd like to uh, introduce our ICEPSEC workflow. In this project, we aim to develop an easily accessible, easily deployable, and cost-effective microbial CFDNA approach uh, for sepsis diagnosis. Our workflow consists in four main steps, which we aim to deliver in under six hours. Um, the first step is uh, blood sample preparation. For this, we have developed our own um, custom uh, cartridge-based CFDNA extraction um, automated solution, which uh, provides an eluate of circulating cell-free DNA uh, in just 45 minutes from plasma. Followed by this, we have a library preparation in one hour and 30 minutes. Uh, and after this, we aim to do real-time sequencing on an Oxford Nanopore platform in just two hours. Um, and once we have uh, the sequencing data, we use a bioinformatic pipeline which is a free online uh, cloud-based um, pipeline, which delivers a first report in just 30 minutes and a more consequent report uh, in three hours. Now, what is different with our approach? Well, first of all, uh, the timing uh, is much quicker than current approaches for circulating nucleic acids. Um, then in sample processing, our cartridge-based extractions enables complete control, including uh, immediate stabilization of cell-free DNA, immediate access to the material for uh, um, clinical teams, portability, 
reduce storage needs as you only need to store uh, extract of CFDNA uh, and reduce cost. Now, in the sequencing part, we are using a long read uh, sequencing approach. The advantage there is the low capital investments, uh, the real-time nature, uh, in particular of the base calling, which speeds up the analysis, um, the portability of the technology. The disadvantage is a lower accuracy compared to short read sequencing. This is um, fast uh, changing due, due to the fast-paced nature of the technology. Oh. Couple more things I'd like to say on our ICEPSEC workflow. It's completely culture-free uh, and it's amplification-free. In terms of time to result, we easily beat the standard blood culture results. Um, and we also beat a, a commercial offer from Caius, which um, uh, is 24 hours from the moment the samples are received. We can take up to uh, 24 hours, so a total of 48 hours. So using uh, this timing, uh, most of which we already deliver right now, uh, we can um, um, uh, deliver a complete result in just six hours. Now, I'm going to uh, share a, a few results that we've obtained on this workflow, starting with the CFDNA extraction. Um, in the last 18 months, through optimization, we have stabilized elution volume to reach 60 microliters with a CV of 12%. And this has resulted um, in a CFDNA recovery of an average of 77% compared with the manual extraction technique. So the CAGEN circulating nucleic acid, which is considered the gold standard in the industry uh, and uh, which is now to be superior to existing uh, robotic handling um, solutions. Uh, next, um, we have applied our whole uh, workflow to contrived sepsis samples. So the way we've uh, uh, put these samples together is using a fragmented microbial DNA mix containing eight uh, pathogenic species, three, uh, eight bacteria, sorry, seven bacteria and uh, one fungi into one uh, milliliter of healthy plasma samples. And we've extracted um, three of these samples onto our automated uh, platform and three samples on the bench for comparison. And then we have sequenced the elevates um, onto the uh, uh, Oxford Nanopore Flongal uh, device. So in terms of sequencing performance, we haven't seen any significant difference between the cartridge elevate uh, and the bench manual elevate uh, through three uh, quality indicators, including number of reads, a FRED score, and percentage of un unclassified reads. In terms of pathogen identification, we found uh, similar detection pa patterns for the eight organisms of this um, microbial DNA mix, uh, which confirms the basic workflow capabilities. Now, bolstered by uh, these promising results, we've acquired uh, 10 uh, septic patient samples from the Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine and the Malawi Liverpool Welcome uh, Clinical Program. And all 10 samples have been extracted uh, and sequenced. And we're still analyzing uh, these results. But today, I want, you, I want to give you a really quick peek uh, into the type of results that we're getting. So in sample number 80 there, uh, the sample came from a 20-year-old uh, male, which presented at the hospital with fever, cough, chest pain, and difficulty breathing, 
The light, lactate um, reading was at 2.63. And the cultural results note only says um, no growth, but GPC seen. Now, using the ICEPSEC workflow, uh, the organisms that we have identified in this sample is a Streptococcus pneumoniae. Um, it uh, gave a very strong signal at 8% of the total CFDNA reads. And uh, this is highly consistent with the clinical presentation of the patients, which points out to the clinical validity of our approach. So in summary, we have made significant progress towards um, a technique that is sensitive, specific, cost-effective, multi-pathogens, uh, rapid and portable um, for sepsis diagnosis. And it has the added bonus of um, having the capacity for epidemic surveillance and monitoring emerging threats. I'd like to thank uh, the organizers for the invitation and the fantastic opportunity to speak today. I'd like to thank Anna and Linda at Heritage University, who did most of the technical work. Amanda, who were from the University of Edinburgh, um, who helped um, put the uh, sequencing setup together. Um, Kasuhiro Horiba at Nagoya University, who developed the PASDET, uh, cloud-based, online, and free uh, bioinformatic tool for sepsis diagnosis, um, and Jamie Rylands and Chevin Jacob at the University of Liverpool and Jacob Pulusa at the Malawi Liverpool Welcome Trust and everybody for listening. Thank you. Thank you, Maiwen. That was that was really interesting talk and uh, and nice to see some some of your your data coming through now. Um, I appreciate it. It's relatively early in development still, um, but there are there are several questions in the chat here, um, and I, about about what steps are being made towards making this affordable for lower resource settings where we've already discussed the burden of, of sepsis lies. Um, have you have you thought about that? I know, I know you say it's cost effective, but how do you envisage it being used in these settings? Uh, yes, uh, it's a, a, a little bit of a difficult question. Um, it's cost effective compared uh, to maybe uh, the Illumina short read sequencing approach that is um, um, commercialized at the moment, uh, but it's not co cost effective compared to you know, some of the rapid diagnostic or even some of the established blood culture that we have at the moment. However, um, the uh, you know the first human genome costs uh, a billion uh, pounds, right, so to um, to sequence, and now a full genome takes just one thousand dollars. So the scale uh, uh, of um, cost is just decreasing so fast that um, you know I hope that it will be affordable in uh, in the near future. Um, there has already been. Um, uh, some health economic studies on these that shows uh, that it is uh, cost effective to use such an approach, especially if it can diagnose, um, you know, specific uh, causes like we've, we've done in our uh, pilot study uh, and which would avoid having, for example, a chest scan. Um, so I, I hope that this, you know, gives some elements of answers to this. Great, thank you. And then another another probably couple one sentence answer. Again, the question is what type of samples can you put can you use whole blood? Yes, so the uh, automated platform itself uh, only takes plasma at the moment, 
And uh, our solution for the blood to plasma part uh, is going to be um, a, a mini centrifuge that can take uh, just two uh, nine ml, so significant volume uh, of, uh, of samples. Um, and I've actually published this. Um, it's uh, it's a, a preprint on BioArchive and hopefully very, very soon uh, published in PLOS One. Okay, um, and just while we're getting the slides through, so next presentation ready, um, uh, there's a question about, about health economic studies, actually. Where, um, can, you, can you point um, some of the audience towards where the health economic studies might be found? Yes, uh, so uh, the car, if, if they go on the CARIUS website, um, they, in the publication section there, they should find uh, health economic study that the CARIUS company and Timothy Blokam um, performed a few years ago. And otherwise, please feel free to contact me and I'll give you the details. Okay, that's that's great. Um, thank you very much, Marwen. Um, thank you for We're going me. to move on now to our next speaker, uh, Cecilia Pereira, who will be coming to us um, from FIND. Uh, for those of you who don't know uh, about FIND, uh, FIND is a global alliance for diagnostics. It seeks to ensure equitable access uh, to reliable diagnosis around the world. Uh, Cecilia is an infectious disease specialist, um, but she is now uh, also the director of the AMR program at FIND. Um, she's going to be talking about developing a target product profile for sepsis diagnostic platforms applicable to high global burden settings. Um, I think we can get Great. going. Thanks, Celia. Thank you very much, Louise, and thank you for the to the organizers and uh, to the previous speakers for setting up the the scene. Um, I'm going to walk you through through some of the uh, initial thoughts that we are having at Fine uh, regarding a development of a target product profile for for um, neonatal sepsis. So I think we all are aware of the problem and the magnitude of the problem. Um, and we know that sepsis is affecting millions of babies all around the world. And unfortunately, most of the mortalities and, and, the, and the incidence of sepsis is being seen in low and middle income countries. Um, we also know that neonatal sepsis is the third leading cause of mortality. We know that the clinical algorithms that are being used today have a very low sensitivity and specificity, particularly because those have been done from a high income country perspective. Um, we also know the broad-spectrum antibiotics are increased adverse outcomes and are leading to antimicrobial resistance, which is going to be our concomitant problem when we talk about sepsis. Uh, the evidence on best diagnosis, and I'm glad to see some of the initiatives in, in these uh, initial presentations and sub-technologies out there. Um, but I think we need a bit more of, a, of an evidence-based uh, uh, diagnostics and recommendation for sepsis. And as we all know, and our first speaker already presented before, surveillance systems in LMICs are really poor, and we need more data on AMR and sepsis to better understand what we are talking about. Um, and as you know, 85% uh, of sepsis and around 85% of sepsis-related deaths are occurring in low and middle-income countries. So I think it's time to act uh, now. What is the role of diagnostics for neonatal sepsis? Uh, and I think um, as an ID physician myself, I can say 
We don't know. Uh, we have an initial workflow. We do uh, white blood cell scans. We use differential white blood cell counts, immature rates, um, platelets, glucose levels. But we know that none of them of this is the gold standard. We have to use a combination of diagnostic solutions that are not always giving us um, a fast enough uh, response to treat the baby. And uh, also uh, the time error results, we all know is a big issue. Block cultures take uh, days. Uh, we are seeing some near patient point of care technologies, but are these the ones that we should be using? Uh, and babies pose a particular problem in terms of volumes. Uh, how much volumes of blood are we needed um, to do all this menu of diagnostic technologies? So what we know until now, and that's why we are scoping a neonatal sepsis uh, TPP um, for neonates, is that there is a lack of clear definitions on neonatal sepsis, both clinical and diagnostic pathway. The different etiologies between high-income countries and low-middle-income countries make it quite challenging in terms of defining what will be the best panel for diagnostic approaches as well. We know that blood culture has been the gold standard, uh, but with a low performance, we know the challenges to get enough volume from the babies, but also the positivity rate and contamination rates are very low and high in this particular population. Uh, biomarkers, uh, there is a lot out there, but there is nothing out there in terms of enough evidence. What is the right biomarker that is useful for this population? There is also lack of evidence on the role of other commonly used diagnostics like glucose, uh, flu cancers, lactates. Um, and moreover, most of these tests are, are, not full, are not widely available in LMICs, which makes signs and symptoms have been used by, by in the clinical algorithms to identify cases. Also, we know that in LMICs, the cost and access to tools is one of the main challenges. Uh, we've seen that for COVID, access to testing and um, vaccines has been really poor, and the same is applicable for, for sepsis. Um, so, sorry, I jumped one. So, well, at, at fine, we start looking for uh, what is out there, what is the technology uh, out there, and this is work in progress that I hope uh, is going to be published soon. Uh, so we've done a technology landscape search, including different company websites, uh, conferences, uh, articles, uh, literature reviews. We searched for sepsis, test technologies, neonatal sepsis. We did not exclude complex technologies because there are so few uh, technologies on the pipeline that we didn't want to limit the search. So we have uh, made a wide um, explore of technologies out there. Many companies, for example, offer a single plex lateral flow test for a single biomarker like CRP or PCT. Uh, but we also focus on, on other platforms that will uh, integrate more, more biomarkers relevant to neonatal sepsis. And we develop uh, different scoring criteria, whether it has a neonate application or a sepsis related assay. Um, so what we find out until now so far is biomarkers for sepsis. Uh, you know that there are many studies ongoing to define um, which biomarkers are performing better in this particular population. But again, very few studies have been done in low and middle income countries, and very few studies are ongoing right now. 
Uh, the only uh, biomarkers what we find out with the high sensitivity and specificity has been cell surface markers, both CD11B and CD64. But we know that other biomarkers like um, ELCs or ELA ha ha show good performance in, in high-income countries. Uh, and we also know the poor uh, role of CRP and PCT, but we also know that they do have a role, maybe not to rule in sepsis, but to rule out um, or to reduce um, antimicrobial consumption. So there is a lot of, of um, evidence needed in this field uh, from those settings. Um, but then again, what, what some considerations for use in these settings? What is equipment required for detection? Can ELISA, a flow cytometry, a lateral flow test, what is the right format? Knowing that in most LMICs, uh, power supply is an issue, uh, lack of lab infrastructure, uh, but also lack of a train HR. So uh, we had to make it easier, but at the same time, we wa want a quality and a good performance. Um, does the biomarker requires quantitation or qualitative information will be enough? And uh, we need to better understand the time frame uh, for biomarkers increase and decrease in neonates. We know it's pretty challenging, uh, the nature. Um, are multiple biomarkers required? Like maybe uh, a combination of different biomarkers will increase sensitivity and specificity? We don't know. Uh, so we need more data from, from LMICs. Um, we also find out other technologies for sepsis. Uh, some of them are multiplexing. Some of them are barely uh, early stages yet. Uh, some of them are robust enough for LMICs. Others are not. Others require a more sophisticated laboratory. Uh, the sample prep is a big issue, as I mentioned before. We need to work with small volumes of, of blood. And the ideal will be that with that small volume, you can have all what you need, including glucose and what blood cells count. Uh, we are following up on some new technologies that are out there. Uh, some of them are targeting LMICs, some others are not, but they will be interested on those, some, some evaluations in those settings. And I, I, I want to frame here uh, what Fraley and colleagues uh, wrote in this paper, which I found it really useful. Uh, how how a, an ideal diagnostic test for sepsis should be when we go again into the ideal uh, that we are always uh, asking for has to be rapid. It has to be a broad-based detection, should include bacteria, viruses, and fungi. Um, it should be minimally invasive. We know that the volumes of, of uh, samples are really critical for these babies. It needs to have high sensitivity and specificity because it needs to be better than what we are using right now. It should have a polymicrobial detection because we know that contaminants is an issue. It should include drug resistance because this is coming, this is happening already. It needs to be uh, integrated into the clinical workflow, so it has to be easy to use and require a minimal expertise. We know that in most of these settings, um, just clinicians are running the whole show. Um, it should detect unknown and emerging pathogens, ideally, and I think that COVID has shown us that's important is to have multiplex um, platforms, and it has to distinguish the inflammatory response uh, in either host or pathogen driven. So what are we doing right now is um, 
drafting a, a TPP and why TPPs are important, particularly for, for uh, product development partners like, like Fine, because these are the key to use manufacturers and guide the manufacturers. And if we have a poor understanding of what is the clinical need, the results are really, uh, is a test will be poorly used. Uh, we are going to have tests that are not fit for post and we never reach the market. Also, the TPPs help um, to, to provide a clear guidance on, on how the test should look like, should work like, what the price should be. So it's a whole combination of, of information that is useful from beginning to the end of, of a test development. So where we are now is on the phase one, scoping the TPP. So as I mentioned before, we are already doing a landscape analysis of what is out there. We are doing a literature review of, of available data. We are already having meetings with key stakeholders and other key opinion leaders to define what will be the best test characteristics and, and, the, and the priority setting. Um, in 2020, I think, uh, this, this report from UNICEF and Nick Nest uh, 360 has been published. They were intending to have a TPP for neonatal sepsis. And as you can see, they developed six, six use cases, um, and that showed the complexity of neonatal sepsis. Um, so the, the, the difference between most of them is uh, whether to start antibiotics and, or to stop antibiotics and at which level of the, of the health system the babies are, are seen. Um, and of course, there are technology considerations at each level and for each, each use case. Uh, so what are the next steps from, from our side is um, uh, also link it with neonatal sepsis, but more broadly uh, targeting bloodstream infections and severe patients. We are supporting the development of a simplified blood culture system uh, that should be able to be sitting in a level two facility in a low and middle income country. So it's not going to be a huge, massive uh, Maldito-like. It's going to be smaller um, and more simpler to use technology. And we are also working on developing a molecular panel for pathogen ID and ASD, because we know that until the sequencing and the new technologies arrive, not something has to be done in these settings. And to get simpler, that will be the best way to go. Um, we are going to define also, um, we are going to work with experts uh, to simplify the use cases that I mentioned before to develop the TPP. We are going to prioritize the needs. What, what is what is that we need? What is that clinicians need in LMICs? Do they need enough information to start antibiotics, to stop antibiotics, to track severity? What is right now needed? And from there, we can start developing the next steps. Uh, we need more evidence on biomarkers and, and, and the combination of them. What works better or it doesn't work? And in which kind of platform? Is a lateral flow assay better than a multiplex? Um, so we are going to be inviting key stakeholders to be involved in this TPP definition, open an expression of interest for different manufacturers to start the discussions. And, uh, and at the same time, that's something that we always do at FINE, is we start having an engaging with countries discussion to be prepared for the further rollout. Because you may develop the best technology in the world, but if this is not finally accessible to LMICs, I don't think you, you are successfully achieving what, what you aim for. Uh, 
And with this, I want to thank uh, all of you for listening and all my colleagues supporting this work. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Cecilia. Um, that was really interesting. And I think you, you, you brought up many, many of the challenges faced all over the world, not just in LMICs, uh, in, in diagnosis of sepsis. Um, I have a question for you, really. We, we're talking about LMICs in general, but we all know they're highly variable and the causes of sepsis are very variable, even within countries, let alone throughout the world. Have you considered that and how will you integrate that into your target product profile? Yeah, that, that's a great question. And, and you are right. Uh, even LMICs have, have a difference. Uh, uh, a neonatal intensive care unit in South Africa is not the same that in DRC. Uh, and, and we are really aware of that. And that's why uh, when you define a TPP, you are having different key stakeholders sitting with you and defining that, that TPP. And then you finally reach to an agreement. Um, and I have to say that basically the more simple tool that is useful for that very poor uh, resource setting will be definitely useful for a, for a, a better suited lab. So I think that finding the balance of what works best uh, for both. That's what a TPP aims for as well. Um, and the TPP finally goes through um, a selection criteria with voting. So it's a, it's a, a, there is a lot of um, uh, statistics behind. And there should be an agreement between what will be the best for one setting versus another one. Thank you. Um, I don't want to encroach too much, perhaps on the next speaker's talk, but there's there's a lot of chat um, about making these type of tests affordable in lower resource settings. And can you give us some examples of, of how you approach this? I mean, obviously, it's very important to the project, but how you actually go about doing this? Mm -hmm. Right. So um, I, I'm happy to see that the diatropics colleagues are there. So I think that's going to be also some useful information on how you can uh, shape the market for LMICs. And I think that something that I find always tough when developing any test is you start having discussions with those countries from the day zero. Um, and also uh, the discussions we have with the manufacturers are, are pretty clear um, in terms of the target price, and those target price are also included in the TPP. Um, and we know sometimes TPPs can ask for a $1 price, which is not feasible, uh, and we are aware of that. So we are trying also with the price in the TPP to make a good balance between what is the real cost of goods of the technology, what will be the benefit for the manufacturer, but basically what you need is to make this technology accessible. And I think a lot of work has been done on COVID um, at FINE uh, through the ACTATE accelerator to bring down the prices of, of the rapid test for COVID for, for LMICs. We've done it also for other technologies for TB, malaria, um, and NTDs, for example. So that's, that's our core um, uh, work as well. And also making sure that the manufacturers, when they apply, they are pretty aware of our global uh, head, uh, global access policies and prices. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you very much, Celia. So we will now move on to our final speaker for this session. And um, it is my pleasure to welcome Chait Tijan Janya. 
Jake uh, originally trained in Toulouse in France with a PhD in structural and functional biology, but he now leads a diatropics laboratory. Uh, for those of you unfamiliar, diatropics is a social venture. It's founded by, by the Pasteur Institute uh, in Dakar, Senegal, the Meria Foundation, uh, the Foundation for Innovative New Diagnostics in Geneva, and the French Institute for Research and Development. Uh, Diatropics focuses on local manufacturing of rapid diagnostic tests for neglected and epidemic diseases in Africa. So um, uh, over to Jake, the, the floor is yours. Thank you very much, uh, Louise. Uh, it's a privilege to uh, talk about accessible and affordable scale-up of diagnostics in Africa. Um, LMICs have limited access to healthcare and uh, the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation showed that the country with the lowest GDP per capita share the highest burden of, from, of communicable disease. And most of these countries are, uh, are based in Africa. And the such burden has tremendous impacts uh, in terms of health, but also economical and social, social impact. Diatropic initiative started before COVID-19. Uh, in order to uh, bring capacity, diagnosis capacity for infectious and neglected disease uh, in Africa, and to do so for visionary partners, which are the Maria Foundation, SIDE, Institut de Dakar, and Institut de Recherche and Development, success successfully partnered to deliver one single goal, which is the promotion uh, of access to diagnostics for local manufacturing, but also by setting up an innovative access model. Diatropics will um, manufacture tests in three different scenarios. The first one is when the tests are not available. Uh, second one is when the tests are available but not satisfactory in terms of performance because sometimes tests can work uh, very well in a country, uh, in European country and not work in, in Africa. And the third scenario is when the tests uh, are available but not affordable for the African market. Uh, diatropics will leverage on the, on the lateral flow uh, uh, technology. And we'll mainly work through industrial partnerships. Uh, so far, three partners, have, technical partners, have, have joined us. They are Mologic in the UK, Bionet in South Korea, and Biomere in France. Manufacturing at Diatropics is very demand-driven, and the demand can come from different parties. In order to ensure an affordable supply, the parties will, have, will pay a membership fee, which is a yearly subscription that covers fixed costs. And uh, hence, then we have access to the diatropics test pipeline. And we'll be charged only the manufacturing fees, which are more or less equal to the cost of goods. This allows diatropics to have a price tag for its members and also work efficiently with different uh, leaders in uh, health in Africa, like the Africa CDC, and also the West Africa Health Organization that covers the 15 countries in the ECOWAS region. And such model also allows us to um, avoid to do the distribution via a third party, because that will add a margin to the final cost. Basically, the price cut offered by Dratropic through the mutualization with the membership covers 60% of the cost of an RDT, and these are the operating margin and the labor costs, and the price charged to the Dratropic members will cover 40% of, of, of the cost of the RDT, which are the facility maintenance equipment cost of goods, but also cost related to, to quality. 
as I was saying uh, earlier, Diatropics uh, has started before uh, the pandemic. It started on September 2019 with the construction, and uh, it rapidly ramped up with the operations and the manufacturing of the first COVID-19 antibody. And on November 2020, Diatropics has been ISO 13.5 certified by the British Standard Institutions. And as of March 2021, four members have joined Diatropics. They are the Open Society Foundation, Médecins Sans Frontières, the West Africa Health Organization, and the Africa CDC. On July 2021, the first market authorization for the COVID-19 antigen uh, was achieved in Senegal. And uh, on October 2021, the first regional emergency use for the site of COVID-19 antigen. And uh, on December 2021, Diatropis has been allowed the Guardian Prize in the category of the best medical technology for this COVID-19 antigen test that has been uh, distributed in, uh, in Africa. In terms of manufacturing processes, uh, there, are the, there is a quality control, formulation, treatment, assembly, and packaging. And all of these processes are run through the ISO 13.5 standards. And the diatropist is in a capacity to transfer technology from anywhere, any steps of these processes. It means that it can receive raw materials and go through the quality control of the raw materials to the packaging and the final batch release, or it can also receive the semi-finished products in order to ramp up uh, quickly this capacity. And this is what has been done for the COVID-19 antigen. In the pipeline, currently there are a COVID-19 antigen and antibody tests with uh, Biotechnology as technical partners and with different funders. But also there is hepatitis B antigen, the meningococcal meningitis, yellow fever antigen, dengue antibody and, anti and antigen, measles, rubella, Ebola, the African trypanosomiasis, and also the Marburg. Marburg has been recently funded by FINE, and it's the only test for which there is no, there won't be a technological transfer. Diatropis will be doing the R&D. To go quickly on the COVID-19 product that have been manufactured so far, there is so the COVID triple antibody COVID-19 uh, test. Um, and this detects IgA, IgM, and IgG uh, from uh, from blood samples, and the global sensitivity for IgA is 12.1% and specificity 100%. For IgM is 92.5% and specificity is 91.9%. And for IgG, 67.8% and specificity is 100%. So the performance for IgA is very low. It's because IgA blood sample is not the correct samples to detect IgA, but we have noticed here at hospitals that IgA might be a good biomarker for, for severe COVID-19 cases. And when we look at the, the performance, the sensitivity uh, per day per onset of symptoms, the maximum sensitivity for IgA is reached beyond 21 days per onset of symptoms at with 17.0.2%. Uh, and for IgM, uh, maximum sensitivity is reached at between seven and 14 days per onset of symptoms, and it's 96.36%. And for IgG, which 83% beyond 21 days for onset of symptoms. For the COVID-19 antigen test, the clinical sensitivity is 89.9%, and it can reach 92.5% when we look at days onset of symptoms below seven days, and 97.2% if you look at sensitivity inferior or equal to 33, and 100% when you look at sensitivity uh, for CT value um, below, below 25 and overall specificity is 98.6%.
currently there is a capacity manufacturing capacity between 24 million tests per year so which is quite small but thanks to the actay uh, Act, uh, Act initiative we have been funded by find and unitet to increase our capacity capacity and uh, beyond 50 million tests a year and we believe that this capacity is a strong support to the pact initiative set up by the africa cdc which is a partnership to accelerate covid-19 testing in africa and uh, as of february 2022 uh, less than 100% covid-19 tests has been using have been used in africa and we believe this capacity can play a strong role in testing in testing in uh, in africa and also uh, we are ramp up, uh, ramping up our our capacity manufacturing capacity diatropics needs to broaden its activities and find a niche uh, diagnostics niche and we believe that niche will be uh, between what i suppose a doctor patient but so profession vocation and mission and uh, this will certainly be at the cross intersection between what we love to do which is serving africa and promoting health so what we are good at which is project development technological transfer so industrialization for tests but also as previously demonstrated with the yellow fever manufacturing in uh, in at ipd so what we can be paid for is um, um, offering manufacturing capacity but also offering technical expertise franchising the branding and so brand segmentation and finally what the world needs i would say mainly africa what mainly africa needs which is access to high quality diagnostics and local manufacturing thank you very much thank you chick that was really really interesting and followed very nicely from celia's talk um uh, i guess a question from me following really from your last slide would be um from your point of view um what do you think the priorities are and in terms of what you love and what way you would like to go where would you move into in terms of di diagnostics assuming the others factors would align with that oh, thank you that's a good question actually we are thinking about going um, uh, through amr amr testing and i think sepsis one will be a very good candidate that we're thinking about not only focusing on uh, communicable disease, but also in non-communicable disease, such as cancer-related disease. Okay, thank you. Um, and then a, a couple of questions uh, coming up in the audience chat. Um, a fairly specific question about the sensitivity and specificity, I think, of the COVID tests, uh, from which, which regions of Africa uh, and where, where, where were people involved? Or what were the populations used? in in these validation so um for the covid 19 antibody test it has been tested in uh, senegalese hospitals here in dakar uh it has been tested uh, on uh, covid 19 uh, suspect cases and for the covid 19 antigen test so this is the oem OBL product it has been independently evaluated by fine dx uh we also did a uh, same uh, evaluation here in dakar in the same hospitals where the COVID-19 antibody test has been done on COVID-19 suspect cases. Wonderful. Um, and there is a question more generally about common pathogens, uh, and perhaps I could uh, spin that round to, in terms of developing diagnostics in the future, are there certain pathogens that, that you're thinking about already uh, in addition to the COVID-19 work? 
Yes, so um, in the pipeline, so there are a couple of tests we are on which we are focusing on, which are the hepatitis B, meningococcal meningitis, uh, yellow fever, dengue, measles, rubella, Ebola, Africa, trypanosomiasis, also Marburg. And for meningococcal meningitis, um, we are thinking about having an, a new test that will be focused on listeria, monocytogen, also on uh, E. coli, and hemophilus and Pionte. These are the tests that we'll be focusing on in the next two years. And um, if there are some partners like FINE or other parties, uh, we'll be happy to take transfer any tests that will be of use for the African populations. Wonderful. Well, thank you very much, Jake. And your talk brings us to the end of this first session uh, of today's meeting. I would like to thank all of our speakers in this session, uh, some wonderful talks and very thought provoking. There's a lot of chat in the box and I hope, hope that um, the speakers will be able to join the rest of the meeting. Uh, we will follow on after a short break with our next session, um, which will start on the hour. So in about 20 minutes time, I think. Uh, uh, on biomarkers in the diagnosis and management of sepsis and COVID-19. Uh, I'd like to thank all of the sponsors who make this meeting possible. They enable it to be free for people wherever they are in the world to join. And uh, I really would like to extend our thanks and gratitude to the sponsors. And finally, to thank all of you uh, participants in the Congress as well. You're, you're essential for the meeting and it's, it's amazing to see people from all over the world and all times of day and night joining in the chat. Um, these sessions will be available starting on the 3rd of May, uh, available on Apple Podcasts and YouTube. So keep a lookout for those as well. But uh, with that, I would like to bring this first session to a close. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening, and thanks to everybody who contributed to making the 2022 WSC Spotlight possible, especially all speakers, moderators, our amazing sponsors, and of course, the Scientific Committee, led by Flavia Machado, Evangelos Giamarellos Borbulis, and Marvin Zick. The next session will be available next Tuesday, May 10th. As mentioned at the top, the full release schedule is available on the Congress website. See you next week.